Now, everybody knows everything they need to know about the book of Nahum, right? Okay, good. Well, let's pray, then we'll be dismissed. <laughs> uh, when I realized that I was going to get the book of Nahum, I can't tell you just how excited I was. <laughs> I, I was much happier doing 150 Psalms than I am doing three chapters of Nahum. <laughs> oh, poor little Nahum. He gets a bad rap. So... Nahum is part of the minor prophets, and you know that the minor prophets are mi not minor because they, have, because they don't have anything to say. It's because they say it shorter than everybody else did. Uh, Nahum says what he needs to say in three chapters, uh, where Isaiah has over 60 chapters, and Ezekiel has 40 or so of them. And so, you know, they just were minor. They wrote less words to communicate what they needed to say. And so they had to say everything really fast. And that's what Nahum does. So does anybody know in here a time when you might have studied the book of Nahum? Well, this is just, so I could really say anything tonight. <laughs> and so, well, anyway, at your table, you have handouts. I know that's not a surprise to those of you who've been here before with me. Um, so the, if the hand, the, whoever has the handouts, give out the one that has the lines on it for people to write in on. And so we'll try and cover some of this tonight. If you need extra ones, there's some up here on the table. All right. Everybody ready? Okay. So you'll find this, I think, very interesting as we look at the book of Nahum. Um, Nahum, Nahum means compassion or comfort. Nahum means compassion or comfort. And as you read through uh, the book, you'll wonder how he got that name. Um, Nahum's prophecy was the compliment to Jonah. You all remember Jonah, right? He was the guy with, that had the issue with the fish and lived in the belly of a big fish for three days and then he was vomited up on the land. That was lovely. That was Jonah. Nineveh was the same city, although the, the uh, time frame between the two, Jonah had been in Nineveh between 100 and 150 years before Nahum was written. So there's nowhere to write that down. That's trivial information in case it ever comes up on trivia night. So Nahum's prophecy was the compliment to Jonah. Jonah celebrated God's redemption. That's what his message was about to the people of Nineveh was God's re redemption and salvation. But Nahum marks the coming judgment of God against all sinners worldwide. And so this is a very different book. It's very different than Jonah. Uh, Jonah has its moments there. And uh, we can, most of us have learned the story of Jonah somewhere along the way. And so this is a little bit different. Nahum's theme for the entire book is that God's discriminating anger and vengeance against pride and cruelty arise from his great love for people. So God's discriminating anger and vengeance against pride and cruelty 
arise from his great love for people. And as you read through the book of Nahum, and we're going to look at some of it tonight, it really is quite amazing that when you think about all the things that Nahum is going to say, that this really is about God's love. And one of the things I learned a very long time ago is that when I loved my son unconditionally, I was willing to discipline him. And that's what God did. That's what God does. He loves us so much that he's willing to take a stand against what's wrong in our lives and to correct it. And so it's quite an adventure. Uh, my son, many of you all may have heard me say, my son was a wayward person for 30 years. And so I had lots of practice <clears throat> at being the kind and compassionate but mother, but also one that was willing to discipline him, even as an adult, um, through his straying years. So from the time he was 10 until he was 40, uh, he was a wayward person. And so I would have called him a wayward child, and maybe he was, even though he was 40. But uh, God did help him turn his life around, and so today he's 54. Ooh. Anyway, so, so let's just stop there for a minute and think about some things about Nahum. Nahum's singular emphasis in this book is the destruction of Nineveh. That's all he's going to talk about. He'll talk a little bit about God and something for the Jews, but it really is about Nineveh. And so around 760 BC, God sent Jonah to Nineveh. And the purpose of Jonah being there was redemption and repentance. That's why God sent him there, even though it was a difficult journey getting there, and to preach hope to the Assyrian people. Nineveh was in, in Assyria. And so they heard it, they believed it, and you might remember Jonah preached an eight-word sermon, and 120,000 people were saved. I bet there are preachers today who would love to preach an eight-word sermon and have 120,000 people saved. Don't you think? I would think so. Um, so Jonah did that, and but uh, by a hundred years or so later, the people in Nineveh and Assyria had repented from their repentance. They had gone back to their evil ways, and they had become more cruel and more heinous to the people around them than anybody else. Nineveh is known as one of the worst disasters as far as the city was concerned for cruelty and the way they treated people uh, who were not Assyrians. And so they were. it was quite a difficult time. And this is the world that Nahum was familiar with. Nahum knew this part of Assyria. He knew this cruelty of Assyria. Remember, it was about 150 years after Jonah, so they really had gone downhill. And so what Jonah failed to realize was that God's justice is always right and always sure. God's justice is always right, and it's always sure. And Jonah didn't communicate that to the people of Assyria or to Nineveh, and they really went downhill completely. He preached during, Nahum preached during the time of King Manasseh, who, if you know anything about the uh, Israel's kings, everyone was worse than the one before him. And so as you read through the Old Testament of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you'll discover that about every 10 verses it says, and this king is more evil than the king who was before him. 
only till they get to some of them like Ahab who was worse than most of them. But King Manasseh was evil and so he brought a lot of destruction and things that to the to the Jews because he was evil but late in his life he came to a salvation experience. He had a conversion, he began to understand God and to have a relationship with him. By that time, however, it was already done. Even his conversion and his change did not allow the nation of Israel, which was then the northern kingdom, to have make any difference in their lives at all. And so it was a very sad kind of thing. So, so Jonah, back to the handout, um, Jonah really is a book of uplifting and threatening prophecy. So you, it's hard to think of those two words together, right? Uplifting and threatening. But it was uplifting to the Jews, but it was threatening to Nineveh and to the Assyrians. And so at your table, you have a, a series of questions there, and you're, um, somebody at the table has the questions. And so I'd like for you to take just a minute and to do the question, read what it says about chapter one, and then as a table group, discuss the answers to those three questions.
As you read through those verses, as you read through those verses um, just now, what's your impression? Anybody? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was. He, yes, God was. He was. He was angry, vengeful, wrathful. Yes. Pardon me. <laughs> he definitely had enough. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon me? Slow to anger, yes. Yeah, and you'll learn that in a minute, that it really was slow to anger. Anybody else? Pardon me? Yes, yeah. I mean, just as you read through this, I mean, I, I, of all the books in the Bible that I've ever, of all the books in the Bible I've ever read, I mean, this one was just so stark in comparison to some of them when you read all about this. Um, so uh, there are four words that are used here, and I did a little bit, I, don't, I am by no means a Hebrew scholar. So I know that may be hard for anyone to understand, but I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I know enough to find things. <laughs> and so I looked up these four words that are used for God. Um, anger. So I looked at the four words, and you'll, it's on your handout. He used four words to describe God's anger. The first word he used was furious. Now, this may depend on your translation, of course, um, with what you're seeing. But he was furious, he was avenging, he was wrathful, and he was angry. And so I did some research on those four words in Hebrew. And the word furious, to me, you know, when somebody's furious, they are just so angry they can't hardly think. And I thought, well, that's what got me started down this path, because I thought to myself, surely that's not describing God. Um, and it's really not. What the word means in the Hebrew language is that it presupposes that the person who is furious loves deeply, and they are so hurt and disturbed by what their loved one has done that they just overwhelmingly hurt and mad about what's happened. But it assumes that God loves these people, but he is so angry at the way they are treating others um, that he can't hardly stand himself. And so, and I thought, what an interesting thought about that. The second word, avenging, and the word avenging, the Hebrew word is used three times in two verses. So I've, I learned a long time ago in Bible study that if a word's used lots of times in 
the same book or in the same chapter, that it's an important word and they should pay attention to it. But the word avenging means to, it's not about revenge. A lot of times we think about avenging as revenge, but what this really means is to pay back somebody for what they have done. So it's a paying back. It's not as necessarily in the terms of revenge, but it's something they deserve. Where revenge sometimes comes because we're just so mad we can't hardly stand ourselves and we look for a way to get even or to get back at uh, somebody. The fourth word is wrathful. And this was fascinating to me because this word wrathful is the same word that is used when Israel crossed the Jordan River when they were going into the promised land. And I thought, well, how could that be? But historically, they know that the Jordan River was overflowing its banks during the time that Israel crossed it to go into the promised land. And so the river was wrathful. And this is the same thing that happens when God gets that kind of disturbing information. It's, it means that he's crossing over so his wrathful means I am crossing over from my love and compassion and care for you and I am intentionally crossing over to this other side where I'm going to take action on what you're doing. And I thought, what a fascinating description of it. If I'd read wrathful, I would have never gotten that picture out of it. But it means crossing over, so God is choosing to cross over from where he is with his love and compassion crossing over to this other side. And then angry. Angry simply means that they are so mad they're beat red in their face. So that's what those four me words mean in Hebrew. So this a very to me, it's a very interesting picture of what God is doing. He is intentionally crossing over. So from the time God, from the time Jonah came to Nineveh until all of this happens is a time span of between 150 and 200 years. And God had said, as David Brock said a little while ago, I've had it. I'm done. You are not going to be any different than you have been, and so I'm done. I am done, and I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you I was going to say suffer. I don't know that that's the right choice of words, but I am going to act against you now. So 200 years, that's a long time. In human years. Remember, they had met Jonah. They came to know salvation. They came to know who God was. They came to have a relationship with him. But 150 or 100 years, between 100 and 150 years later, as I said earlier, they had repented of their repentance. So their cruelty was excessive. And their cruelty was excessive in several ways. But before we go there, let me look back at the Nahum 1, uh, verses 2, three and four, 2 and 3. Where is the first time we learned uh, that God is jealous? It says here in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. Where did we first learn about jealousy with God? It 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. I am a jealous God. He says, as he's giving the Ten Commandments, I will have no other gods before you, before me. I am a jealous God. And he's not jealous in the way we think about jealousy, where we covet something someone else has. We think of jealousy. But God's jealousy is about our affection and our love for him and his affection and love for us. He is jealous for us. He wants a relationship with us so much that he was willing to send Jesus to die. Now, I told you the story a little bit about my son, who for 30 years was a wayward person. I could have never sent my son to die for anybody, even during those 30 years. And when I think about what God did, it hurts my heart. Because I'd have never done that to my son. I'd have never done that. And so as you think about these things of what God did, remember that we are created in God's image. And the same emotions, the same things that we feel in love, he felt. His love for us was so consuming that he was willing to give his one and only son to die for us so that we could have a relationship with him. That's a pretty amazing God. It's a pretty amazing God. And then in uh, looking down a little farther in um, Nahum 1 verse 3, it says, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty and unpunished. Does anybody know where that was first said? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. Nahum knew his Old Testament. He knew the Torah. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is a conversation that God had with Moses. Moses said to God, I want to see your face. I want to know what you look like. And God said, well, you can't look on my face because if you see my face, you will die. So Moses, so God, Moses kept asking, and God said, well, come here and let me put you in the cleft of the rock. This is the McGuire paraphrase of the Bible, by the way. It doesn't say that. Um, and so Moses, put, uh, God puts Moses' face into a cleft in the rock, and then, Moses, then God puts his hand over Moses' face so Moses can't peek, and then God passes by. And when he passes by in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, he describes himself to Moses. If you want to know who God is, read Exodus 34, 6, and 7. It's called the Imago Dei. It's the image of God. It is God describing himself to Moses. But there is where you will find the Lord is slow to anger. And he's great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Those exact words are in Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And so when you think about God's love and compassion and care for us, his whole heart is built into this. So in what he's going to do here um, is just an amazing experience. So, the, uh, so back to the handout I gave you. The explanation of God's anger we see, and I just talked about those two verses, Exodus 20, verse 5, and Exodus 34, 6, and 7. 
And then there are two reasons why God acts in judgment. One's a God reason, and one of them is a man reason. You had to know we were part of it, right? Let's start with the man part first. <laughs> the man word problem is cruelty. When we are cruel to, uh, to those around us, God will express his judgment to us. But God's reason for judging um, is because he wants a... Mm, I've lost my place. Sorry. Hold on one second. Ah, the Godward reason is when we live a life of pride. Do you know what pride says? Pride says, I don't need you. Pride says, I can do this by myself. Have you ever said that? Maybe. Maybe when you were two. I can do. I can do. The truth is, we can never do. We always need God to help us with it. So the two reasons that he, that he will act is because of pride in our lives or uh, because of our cruelty to others. When we say we don't need God, that's pride in our lives. And cruelty to others is how we treat people. So what does it look like to be cruel to your fellow humans? Anybody? Have you ever been cruel? Have you ever been cruel to someone? I don't expect anyone to raise their hand. Larry, were you going to raise your hand? Oh. <laughs> when we are cruel to others, it breaks God's heart. Sometimes we're cruel to others because we don't see them. We pass right by them and don't see them. You may not have ever done that. I have. Uh, sometimes when we, um, we're cruel to people, we, we, um, we don't take the time to pray for them, to hurt for them when they hurt. We don't take time to do what we can for the injustice in our world. We don't take time to speak out or to speak up for things that are going on around us that we know are wrong and that we should speak about, and yet we don't. We don't say anything. We don't do anything about it. That's when we're cruel to others. It doesn't mean that I have to be mean to you personally, one-on-one, -on -one, but I can be mean or cruel to others with it. Uh, as I told you before, God spent 200 years waiting for, his, for things to get better in Nineveh, and they never did. So take just the next few minutes and look at chapter 2 and read the chapter and then answer those two questions.
What did you learn? What did you learn about Nineveh and what happened to it? Anybody? Anybody learn anything? Okay. What did you learn? <laughs> yes. Yeah, those are great words for what happened to Nineveh. Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC. It was never found again until archaeologists uncovered it in 1842. 612 BC to 18 to 1842 is about 2400 years. So great was its devastation that no one even knew the ruins of Nineveh were there. And that's what God did to the city of Nineveh. Because of her unfaithfulness, because of her evil, because of her cruelty, when God said he'd had enough, he had enough. And one of the, one of the things I learned while I was doing this is up here it says... Oh, on verse 6, it says, The river gates are thrown open and the palace collapses. There actually turned out to be a leak in the foundation of the wall around the, build, around the city. And the water crept in and then it became a torrent of water. And it is part of what caused the destruction of the city was the water weakened the wall around the city and the thing really just collapsed. Now, who do you think did that? <laughs> God did that. Uh, so it just is fascinating to me when you learn some of these things, but 612 BC and not uncovered again until 1842 AD. So about 2,400 years uh, between the, its devastation and it before it was found again. So it's a, it was a very sad uh, kind of thing. So let's take just a minute or two and look at chapter three real quick and answer the couple of questions that are there and then we'll conclude our time together.
What did you learn in chapter three? What did you learn in chapter three? Pardon me? <laughs> no, you can't get away with it. No. <laughs> Scott, what was the verse you shared with the group as you were sitting there just a minute ago? It was verse five. Verse. Uh, yeah, I knew that. I, I, you know, it looked like you were napping, and I wanted to wake you up. <laughs> yeah. God made a declaration against them. I am against you. I am against you. No, not twice anyway. <laughs> not twice anyway. Yeah, I mean, of course, we know what happened to Nineveh along the way. And while this seems discouraging and disheartening, I want to leave you with a couple of good thoughts about, about Nahum. One of the things that Nahum teaches us is an aspect of God that we don't see anywhere else, probably in, most of the, in much of the Bible, is that God loves so deeply, but he also hates evil. He hates it in ways we cannot even comprehend, but it's because his love is so deep for us that he hates evil. But God is patient. 
200 years is a long time to work with people to try and help them repent and to recover and to return to him. In human years, not in God years, but in human years. First Peter tells us that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, in which case then 200 years is not very long, but in human years, it's a long time. I don't ever expect to see my 200th birthday, so just in case. Um, so those are some things that we can learn about God. And God's love always interprets what he does. God's love always explains or interprets what he does. So when God acts in wrath and when God acts in the ways that we've talked about tonight, it's because he loves. Until, like with Pharaoh in, well, at the Exodus, as you may remember this about Pharaoh, um, as the Jews were getting, trying to leave Egypt uh, to make their start their journey into the promised land, and they have all these plagues, and Pharaoh said, okay, I'll let your people go. And then it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he wouldn't let them go. And he does that for 11 times. And the last time it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was never going to be different. And God knew that, who could see the future and the past and the current times. God knew that. And the same thing with Nineveh. God knew that with all the times with Jonah and now with Nahum and nothing, nothing, nothing remained. And nothing now remains of it at all. So there are some good things that we can learn about God through Nahum. Uh, it's, as I said, it's a picture of God that we don't often see uh, in the Bible, but it is an accurate picture of who God is. Because when you love much, you're willing to punish much, to take away, to, to like I did with my son. I swore out a warrant for my son's arrest as part of our ongoing journey in things. But I did that because I knew who he was and I knew what he needed. And that's what God does for us. He knows who we are. He knows what we need to get our attention. And he loves us devotedly, committed, and in ways we can't even imagine, unconditionally. He loves us enough to do that for us because he cares. So thanks for spending a few minutes with Nahum tonight. I'd like for us to spend the next few minutes around the table uh, in a time of prayer. And so maybe share some requests with those around your table and someone lead you in prayer. I'd also ask you, this is really on my heart, to, it has been all week, Kathy Schluter and I have talked about it a couple of times, is the island of Tonga in the South Pacific. Um, I don't know whether you know or not, but there was a massive earthquake, um, not earthquake, a volcano eruption in Tonga. And um, if you look at the island now, it's mostly back black ash. There are 105, or were, 105,000 people who lived in Tonga, and they don't know very much about them or their well-being or anything because part of the eruption of the cable cut the fiber optic cable uh, for them to have outside communication. So, yes, and yes, and that the whole thing is covered in ash, even the runways. I mean, they can't even get in to, they can drop food, but they can't get in to land because the runways are covered in ash. And so pray for the island nation of Tonga. I don't know what, what, whether they're Christian or not Christian, but they need help. And we're human. 
and they're human. And this is an opportunity for us to love on a people we don't know and may never know, uh, but God does. And God can intervene in their lives. So tonight, as you pray around your table for some prayer concerns there, uh, also remember the nation, little tiny, little island of Tonga uh, in the South Pacific. And um, so go ahead and do that for the next several minutes, and then I'll close in prayer in just a few minutes.
Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks that you are good. Thank you that you are a loving God. Father, thank you that you reach down to this little tiny planet in the middle of the universes we can't know about or can't find or can't see. And yet you reach down to this little tiny planet in the middle of nothingness. And yet you care about us. You sent Jesus for us. Father, may we always keep that in the front of our minds, that your great love covers everything. Father, thank you for your mercy and your goodness. Thank you for Nahum and his commitment to describe a terrible experience for the city of Nineveh, and yet they didn't listen. Father, I just pray that we as people here in Florida and the United States we begin to look at our world with critical eyes. Not in the mean kind of way, Lord, but that we would begin to seek to understand how our world is and how we might be able to make a difference in it. Father, I pray that each one of us will leave here with a heart that's burdened for the people of the world and the people in our own country. For the ones who don't know you, for the ones who claim to know you but don't act like it, don't act like it, Father, help us all to be a great example of who or what life can be like when we live in your spirit. Father, I just thank you for your commitment to this little church. Father, may we always follow you in everything that we do and say. May we trust you in every way in our personal lives and in the life of our church. Father, may you grow people here deep not just a surface kind of relationship with you, Lord, but a relationship that's strong and deep, where we trust you for anything and everything. Father, I just pray that you would walk beside us, that you would walk with us, that you would walk in front of us. Lord, help us never to lag behind you, personally or in the life of our church. Help us to keep in step with where you're going. Father, what a joy it is to be your daughter, to be your son. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And thank you for your amazing, massive commitment to loving us more than anything else. Father, we trust you with everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being here tonight. Be safe on your way home, and we'll see you again on Sunday. <laughs>